injected the drugs and then started taping up the epidural cath and as I was taping it up she stopped talking and uh, went a bit funny and so mm. we knew th- something serious was happening so we whizzed in the theatre and she basically wasn't talking and <clears throat> could tell that she had a if not complete total spinal very close to it um, so she had a, a, a very quickly induced GA Welcome to episode 53 of the Ops and Gyne Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to the podcast, Graham. I've managed to corner you again. Thanks for inviting me back. Yep. So, uh, like most of the podcasts I do with Graham, I've, um, I've just walked into his office and told him he's about to do a podcast with me, so he hasn't had a lot of preparation. But um, this week uh, I thought we would go through something that is fairly commonly encountered um, when you work in obstetric anesthesia and that is um, the the title is going to be complications after central neuraxial block in obstetrics that sounds pretty um, formal Mm. almost every day when I'm uh, holding the duty anaesthetist page I get a call or uh, inquiry from someone uh, regarding uh, an unusual um, sort of neurological or pain related topic that yep. uh, people <clears throat> see, seem to think may be associated or yep. caused Most by. Most things get blamed on the epidural, don't they? They certainly do, yeah. Yep. Um, so what do, we, what do we mean by a central neuraxial block? That's, um, that's sort of the more formal term, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. So I, you know, when, when I think of that, I think of epidurals, spinals, combined spinal epidurals, yep. caudals. When that's I say right, spinals, yeah, so I mean subarachnoid block. Yeah, so basically for the layperson, I mean, most anaesthetists probably understand what we're talking about, but <clears throat> basically spinals and epidurals, and sometimes we do both at the same time, combined spinal epidural. Uh, Caudal is not done so much in obstetrics, but it's, it's, it's uh, a paediatric thing mainly, mm, isn't it? Great technique indeed. <clears throat> so what I thought we'd do is, um, so so one of the things we're going to base our discussion around is uh, is actually the um, uh, the findings from the NAP3 audit, which was done in uh, the UK in 2009. So I'll just basically explain what the NAP is. It's a national audit project. It's basically where they get every single, try to capture every single data point for a certain condition uh, in the in the UK over a year. And this uh, a great way of ascertaining what the true incidence of complications are um, for certain things. And NAP3 was the third one that they did in the UK uh, back in 2009. And I think they captured pretty much close to all of the patients who had uh, some form of central neuraxial block or some sort of needle in their back over that uh, over, over that period of time and then uh, so that's a really useful way um, way of sort of uh, estimating the true incidence of really serious catastrophic complications but I thought also would maybe just um, uh, base our discussion around a hypothetical case which I'm going to post on the uh, on the web uh, the web blog, which is linked to this discussion. Shall I read it out, Graham? Yes, please. Yeah. And it's sort of, um, because a, a discussion about the complications is often what you need to do whenever you, you have someone who um, uh, who you're consenting um, for, for some form of spinal or epidural. And obviously some patients want to know more than others. So um, anyway, so the hypothetical case that I've written is, um, so imagine that you're the anaesthetist allocated to the anaesthetic outpatient clinic and you're asked to see a pregnant patient who's expecting her second child in a few months' time. She's been referred to you by a midwife from the antenatal services. Um, 
because and she tells you that she had her first child three years earlier and it was a very difficult and unpleasant experience uh, for her. After a long and difficult labour, she said she asked for an epidural for pain relief, um, but she describes that it was a very painful experience when it was placed, and then it did, she she remembers that it didn't work very well, and despite being quite numb in her left leg, she still had a lot of pain. Eventually, she went to theatre for an emergency instrumental delivery, um, and apparently the anaesthetist there replaced it with a new epidural, inverted commas, you can't see me doing that, but um, that's what I'm doing. And she says she then she says she almost passed out and had trouble feeling her hands and breathing for about 30 minutes. The sound doesn't sound too good so far, does it? Great. No, no. <laughs> um, and then after delivery, she said she had a numb patch on her left thigh, and she had what sounds like musculoskeletal back pain for six months, uh, and that and that she said a number of people have told her that, that all of these things are probably due to her epidural. So understandably, she's very anxious about what will happen this time. She says she wants good pain relief during the labour because she had a lot of difficulty coping with the labour pain last time, but she is also very worried and concerned about having another epidural after this last experience. And just to cap this um, hypothetical case off, I've also said she has also been told her baby is bigger this time, and, and their obstetric um, uh, obstetrician has said that she might even need to have a caesarean. What are your thoughts about that, Graham? Sounds pretty. It sounds pretty normal. It actually think. sounds pretty normal. Uh, I know when, I, um, when I'm the consultant in the high-risk anaesthetic clinic, this is a, not an atypical case that is referred to me. And uh, there's a lot of, firstly, sociocultural um, factors to consider as well as uh, information to gather to try and determine exactly what happened, why yep. it happened, and how we can prevent it from happening again if... That's right. At all possible. <clears throat> and then obviously explaining, uh, so this patient wants to know, she wants uh, to have a detailed explanation of all the known risks and complications of epidural analgesia uh, or anesthesia or spinals, obviously, should she need a caesarean. Um, so what I thought we'd try and do, is, so not every patient's going to need such a detailed description, but just uh, I thought what we should do is go through everything that we do know about um, the com you know, known complications which can occur mm. and um, but before we get into that <clears throat> what I thought I would do is just to highlight the the summary sort of findings from NAP3 which we've already explained um, which um, I've got a link to and I'm sure everyone can read themselves which is basically sh um, showed that in the UK anyway during the um, during the NAP uh, audit I think there was about a hundred thousand obstetric analgesia blocks performed, um, which is 25% of the labouring women in the United Kingdom that year. Um, so there's 140,000 epidurals were performed and the overwhelming majority uh, of all of those were, were, there was no serious long-term problems. So in fact, it's actually a really um, safe uh, by any measure when, when you look and when you consider the fact that um, the, since the introduction of epidural analgesia as uh, a method of pain relief, it is um, much more um, uh, effective than anything that had gone before it, mm. and that serious complications from it are incredibly rare. So, so um, you've got to keep that in mind. And then certainly um, what we also need to keep in mind, although we're not going to go into detail on this podcast, there's no time, is that the... Uh, that compared to general anaesthesia, when patients, uh, obstetric patients, come to theatre and need surgery of some sort, um, 
it is much, much safer than uh, the general anaesthesia where we know from um, CMAC or CMACE reports from the UK and other countries um, that serious, long-term, devastating, catastrophic sort of injuries from general anaesthesia are much more common. Although, having said that, still pretty safe mm. most of the time. Yeah, when conducted <coughs> in uh, the right circumstances yeah. by uh, appropriately trained tri- um, clinicians. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess we don't want to lose sight of what, I've, what I'm trying to say is we don't want to lose sight of the fact that um, even though we're going to talk about all the complications, that in fact, um, in general, it is, it is uh, actually a, uh, it has been a real step forward since its introduction, and it's very safe. Yes. But the take-home message should be that it is pretty safe, mm. or very safe. Um, right. So. Um, what we're going to do? So okay. So, what uh, do you want to, Graham, explain? What do you? Um, how do you sort of categorise all the different things that you need to explain to someone when you explain to them the complications, and then yeah. uh, we can delve in. I can add in yeah. the ones that I that I think need to be discussed. Yeah. So, as well. so, so usually when I um, meet patients, it'll either be in a in a clinic setting. Or it may well be for the first time when they're in labour, uh, requesting labour analgesia, and I explain that an epidural is the, you know, safest, most effective form of pain relief in labour, safe for both mother and baby. Yep. I then say that there are um, steps in terms of placing it, that include sitting, sitting still having antiseptic applied in an appropriate manner and then local anaesthetic and then the, the experience the woman will have perhaps as the um, epidural is inserted. Yep. I then explain that there are side effects from the medications, commonly itch, shivering, potentially decreased blood pressure and the impact that it may have on a woman's wellbeing and the, and the fetal wellbeing. Yep. And then I explain really three main um complications those being the risk of postural puncture headache yep the risk of nerve injury either temporary or permanent and yep. the risk of introduction of infection okay that's good so um yeah that's pretty good i've also written down oh uh, sorry the one thing i also um try my hardest to <laughs> to explain but sometimes i forget is the risk of it not working yeah so actually completely. that's my first thing i yep. say is um yeah uh, about one in twenty or one in thirty will be asked to come and have a look at them because they're not working as well as um, either the midwife or the patient would like, and that um, you know sometimes they've just progressed rapidly in labour and they just need more drugs. Mm. Uh, but if it's leaking or falling out, sometimes we have to replace it. So I think most series say one in twenty to one in thirty replacement rate. Yeah, so that's fairly common. I, I quote kind of a, like a one in four of you know less than perfect. Yeah. Um, pain relief. Yeah. But mm. bad enough that you need to replace it as yeah. a 1 in 21, 30. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I've got a few other things, but that, that's pretty good. I agree. That's, that's really useful. Um, maybe when we get to the end of our uh, discussion, too, I'm going to talk about the nocebo effect. But we'll, because mm. you brought that up, I like the way that you, when you, you talk about all the good things first and then that, and that in fact, overall, it's really safe. But we're just going to, and then you sort of preface everything with that. But mm. we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so some of the other things that have been described, I don't know if I necessarily talk to every woman about these things as well, is, but, um, but things like there is a higher incidence of um, maternal fever in labour mm. if you have an epidural, uh, and that can have some consequences as in they often, you know, that might, might mean that both mother or the baby may, or, or her baby may receive antibiotics or blood cultures and things 
uh, more frequently than if you didn't have an epidural. And that's no good for the biome. That's right, and the microbiome, mm. correct. We won't talk about that because there's not enough time, but that's a very big topic. Yep. Um, CSE, so if you do a CSE in labour ward, mm. the, there's an increased incidence of fetal bradycardia. That would be an interesting topic to discuss. I know I, ha- I had that happen last Wednesday night yeah. and I uh, didn't even get paged about it, but apparently there was a prolonged fetal bradycardia after I did a CSE on this woman who they were having trouble doing the ARM, so I decided I've, I actually don't do CSEs in labour that often now, but I decided to do one because I thought it would have... Uh, be a bit more efficacious at getting her um, cervix and vagina comfortable for for the ARM, and she wasn't actually in labour. And then, um, then I found out later on that she'd had a prolonged fetal bradycardia mm. that they hadn't um, mentioned to me. Uh, and so that is a well, that is a described problem with CSEs. It can also happen with epidurals, and can I do, think but it seems to be a bit less common. Yeah, 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 definitely. But I think anyone who's um, got any concerns with regards to placental sufficiency yep, or placental right. insufficiency, I think be very careful with the doses that you use in yeah, establishing so I, a block. To that's exactly right. So, so the advantage of CSC uh, that's that um, is that the more, more rapid uh, analgesia, so you can get control a bit quicker. Uh, and also, you know, as I said, I think it does provide a bit better analgesia to the perineum. Mm. Uh, area but um, the downside is that it does have this um, recognized higher incidence of fetal bradycardia which is thought to be multifactorial mm. but certainly in labor where they've got really painful um, contractions it's thought that maybe the the sudden loss of the pain removes the endogenous sympathetic tone which is a, a mild tocolytic mm. you know because um, <coughs> sympathetic uh, medications are tocolytic so then that may lead to more sustained and vigorous uh, uterine contractions causing some temporary fetal compromise uh, and also you can drop the blood pressure a little bit too with uh, CSC so that's the theory and it's definitely true I've seen it happen that's why I often don't or, or hardly ever would do a CSC if, if the patient has um, concerning CTG or s- a small ba- IHR baby or any other sort of exactly. concerns because I, so I always ask about that and that's, that's probably one, um, one thing to mention uh, what about catastrophic events? So you've got to sort of, you've got to mention to them yeah. about serious things. Yeah. I've got a few down here which I mentioned in NAP3 and, um, and, and other things do, as well. Do you mention these to your patients when you're consenting them? No. So no. I, I, only, I pretty much only mention what you do. Mm. Uh, I actually, and sometimes I throw in a catch-all phrase where I say there's a, a list of some exceedingly rare but really serious complications which can occur... Um, but they're sort of they're so rare that they're like getting run over by a bus or hit by lightning. If you go outside when it's raining or run over by a bus when you cross the road, you know it's possible to have some rare complications. But I, I I'm not going to go into detail because they're so rare unless you want me to. Mm. Uh, oh, oh you that's know. sort of how I phrase it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I mean, the, the things that I've but we probably should go through them because yes. we're doing a podcast on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess they're not that rare though because yeah. <laughs> well, some I, of them are, aren't uh, permanent or. Um, long-lasting but uh, the things still pretty rare the things that spring to mind are definitely a high spinal or total spinal yep um, which I've come across being described to me by colleagues at least twice oh yeah I've definitely had one last year Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you an anecdote in a minute yeah I mean putting putting the wrong the wrong drugs in an epidural yeah so that's been described and uh, there's um, you know in, in, in this country um awareness of chlorhexidine in particular or the alcohol that's Um, right so there was a well publicized case of someone uh, accidentally injecting clear non um, non non-colored chlorhexidine down an epidural needle and causing 
permanent neurological damage. Adhesive arachnoiditis. Yeah. Uh, trauma from the needle to neurological structures. Yep, so direct trauma, yep. Yeah, either off the midline to nerve structures or in the midline of the, with a high-placed uh, epidural or with a patient with abnormal spinal cord anatomy. Yep. yep. <clears throat> so we'll, um, just to preface that, we're planning on doing a follow-up podcast, if we're organised, on neurological injuries um, in, de- in, in, in more detail. So we might just like leave it the, a lot of discussion of, uh, of the different types of neurological injury for that one, which we'll hopefully do after this. Um, yep, that's right. You know, I guess those infectious things, uh, you know, cover both meningitis and epidural abscess. But an yep. epidural abscess in particular is a problem. Yeah, because it presents a bit later, doesn't it? It does, and it requires uh, significant treatment. That's right. <clears throat> so the pressure from the abscess uh, on the, if not relieved, can cause permanent, permanent neurological damage. Yep. And I guess um, the infection itself can also cause, you know, death or Serious injury. Exactly, um, and epidural hematoma. That's right, so epidural hematoma. It's causing the same thing, you know, pressure mm. on, and ischemia to the spinal cord or the uh, um, neurological structures in the back. Uh, did we mention local anaesthetic toxicity? We haven't, no. Yeah, so you did mention wrong things being injected, but yeah, so there was a famous case in the UK, uh, certainly in the last decade, I can't remember how, how long ago it was, where... Um, a woman was given a bag of bupivacaine intravenously instead of down uh, accidentally and that and caused the VF arrest and death. Hmm. Uh, it was a so that's that's sort of related to it because she had an epidural and they were storing epidural drugs in the labor ward and then she had a PPH and they thought they were putting up a bag of saline to resuscitate her but in fact it was a bag of Marcane, 500 mil bag of Marcane. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty serious. And the, um, there's a famous case of a patient potentially having... Uh, Epidural injected local anaesthetic with a caudal block in the late 80s, early 90s in this state, um, again causing a, a, an arrest in a labouring woman. Yep. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, it's probably we could probably go down a black hole and um, find lots of case reports of you know really other rare, weird, wonderful things. I, was got, I thought I would mention the high spinal, though. Um, maybe I'll just mm. relate it to my anecdote. So we had a woman... A uh, adolescent patient who had a, a failed top-up, basically. So she had an epidural. She needed to have a caesarean, and uh, the block only got up to the level of the umbilicus, despite a sort of maximum dose for her weight, about 25 mils of lignocaine, two percent. Yeah. And then we we decided uh, to do a CSE with a half spinal dose. So we were going to use, I think we used one mil of heavy marcaine. Can't remember if we had some fentanyl in there or not. Did the it was a bit difficult, but we did the block, and as I was, we did a CSC because um, we were thinking, you know, you can try and then top up that spinal by putting injecting some saline or something. That's a theory, anyway. Mm. I don't know, I don't know how um, how well that works, but what panned out was that we basically, uh, well, I took over because my um, trainee was having a bit of difficulty putting it, in and I injected the drugs and then started taping up the epidural catheter. And as I was taping it up, she stopped talking and. Uh, went a bit funny and so mm. we knew th- something serious was happening so we was in the theatre and she basically wasn't talking and <clears throat> could tell that she had a if not complete total spinal very close to it um, so she had a, a, a very quickly induced GA uh, and then a caesarean and then it actually wore off really fast so only within about 15 or 20 minutes after the caesarean was finished she was extubated and recovering it was all good 
But so there's definitely a known complication of a high spinal or a high block. Um, but in the literature anyway, there've been a lot of uh, case reports. Um, I think the one thing to be aware of is it's not just respiratory. Is that there have been problems where people are focused on just managing the airway and the breathing and forgot to manage the bradycardia and the hypotension, mm. which can be catastrophic for both the fetus and the mother. Mm. So yeah, uh, just a little quick take home, don't forget um, to, to manage the hemodynamics. You know, aortic cable compression, give some vasopressors and or, and or adrenaline to get the heart rate up and the, and the blood pressure up. Um, I guess the subdural block. Yeah, so that's true. Kind yep. of falls in that category as yeah, well. Yeah, so can you want to describe that? That's that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, an an unusual quality of block where there may be variable motor and sensory um, yep. changes because of where the um, local anaesthetic drug is distributed to, which yeah. is. Um, not 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 controlled in as much as it sits in the epidural space, or not controlled because it sits in the subarachnoid space, but sits somewhere in between. Yeah. So what's the theory? The, the catheter is somehow in the subdural space between the dura and the and the fecal. That's the correct. CSF. That's correct. And then and then the the drugs or the medications, the local anaesthetic, etc., spread in this unpredictable pat, uh, sort of patchy pattern. Mm. So they get these patchy changes. I've seen happen. I've seen a few blocks that have acted like this where. Patients have dilated pupils and yes. weird patchy numbness, but they don't. They're still sore. Yes. And it's not really great. And then we, I even vaguely remember we had one that was acting like this, and then suddenly became quite obviously intrathecal. Suddenly we couldn't aspirate CSF. So yeah. that was a long time ago. But yeah, that's definitely something as well. So well, I think we've sort of covered all the scary things, and now everyone's probably anyone out there who's pregnant or um, thinking about having a baby is probably going Jesus. I might go and get some long-acting contraception. What do you <laughs> Why did I listen to that podcast? <laughs> yeah. When I was a medical student, I was doing oncology. I, I, I think I self-diagnosed at least three cancers. Oh, I remember <laughs> once uh, fronting up uh, to the ED <laughs> to be laughed at. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't like where this is going, Graham. Maybe we should put a stop there. Um, actually, I did write a little note, so I was going to talk about... I think um, they diagnosed me with... Um, Exam-associated stress, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. neuroses. <laughs> neuroses, yeah, that's a very, that's a very um, 1980s sort of diagnosis, isn't it? Is that still in the DSM, DSM four or five, oh. or whatever up to? Mm. Um, so I did really, really write a little note about talking about um, the complications of gaining consent and the nocebo effect. So what do you? Uh, oh, what's the nocebo? Yeah, effect, so the right? nocebo effect is if you describe things as being painful. The chances are, or terrible, they may be perceived as such. It's more, yeah. yeah. So I reckon that, that there's a real, I mean, you know, nowadays in the, uh, the environment of you know, informed consent and things, we are supposed to tell everyone about all these things that can happen, but there's a real art in delivering it in such a manner such that you don't scare the shit out of people. Excuse mm. the French. Mm. Uh, ex- sorry, anyone who is French for, oh. for using that. You'll have, to delete, <laughs> you'll have to delete that one, Roger. Désolé. Désolé, Otherwise, we'll get the explicit rating. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> on iTunes. <laughs> so I have certainly seen colleagues, and probably been guilty of it myself in the past, go up to people and say, you know, I'm going to knock your teeth out, you're going to have an anaphylaxis, um, your heart might stop, you might not breathe yeah. in recovery. Yeah. Uh, to people who are pretty much fit and well, you know, just before they're general anaesthetic. And you can see this look of terror evolving on their face. And then the same, I, I feel that <clears throat> when you're talking to people about the epidural for labour or, or their spinal uh, for their caesarean, you can very easily stray into the same territory where you scare them more than, mm. and uh, basically they just think you're 
you're going to do all these horrible things to them. Uh, and then, and certainly, if you set that up in their mind, there's this great case report that I that I found uh, from uh, from last year. Where, where in Japan, they uh, described this obstetric patient who uh, was enrolled in a placebo study where they were going to do some acupuncture or or placebo um, before they do this before they do the spinal fluid cesarean, and that basically involved putting um, acupuncture needles into her neck and. Uh, and various other places, um, and she agreed to go on the study. And then, as part of the informed consent for this study, was that they explained to her about all these reactions that were possible, including bradycardia and passing out, etc. And then, when they started to do this uh, on her, she she developed a bradycardia into the twenties. Her blood pressure dropped to sixty. They needed to put her on her side, relieve the outer cable compression, and give her some vasopressors. She was actually in the placebo arm of the study, so she had sticky tape applied to her neck. Right. And the only reason they think that she, she developed this severe cardiovascular collapse was because they had told her about it, that it could occur, and she became so anxious. Mm. So this is like an extreme placebo effect, you know, where you scare someone enough, uh, they believe it so strongly that, it, that these sort of reactions can occur. So, so I think you do have to sort of try and emphasise how safe things are and how rare these things are, and that... And I just try and sort of, I put my hand on the shoulder sometimes if they're looking anxious and just sign and say, we're going to look after you. Listen, these are all really rare. Mm. The chance of something bad is not, is so low. I don't want you to worry too much sort of thing. So I think there's, there's a bit of an there's art a, there, There's it? definitely an art and there's definitely an importance to tailor your communication to the patient. Right. But the challenge is uh, reading the patient yeah. in those very uh, time pressured situations yeah. so that you can build a rapport and say the things that are informative and important without causing significant alarm. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's without causing them to collapse. And some people want a lot of detail. Mm, exactly. A lot of people, actually, to be honest, I find the patients who are like in the throes of labour or have come to theatre for an emergency caesarean, they're actually a lot easier because they're just exhausted. Mm and uh, there's a lot else going on and they're not really scared by what you're saying they're just grateful that you're there to make the pain go away or uh, to finally have this baby delivered yes um, etc so but this patient like look at a hypothetical patient i've just oh. described who had a, what sounds like quite a challenging and unpleasant experience in their, with their first child you know she would be highly anxious and charged for days before she comes in to have her second child yeah whatever manner she she delivers yeah. yeah i mean she needs some time she needs the <clears throat> opportunity to discuss the issues yeah and uh seek explanation um be provided with education yep um often written material helps so uh, yeah. i use that uh as often as i can so that someone has something to go away and read up about and then what's it called surf the internet and find out all the other <laughs> terrible things that might occur find, find all these um doula sites on the internet I shouldn't say this but you know um, blogs about people who um, have had horrible things happen to them probably make things worse mm. alright well thanks I think we should probably try and bring it to a close so next next podcast may be uh, me and Graham discussing neurological deficits in more detail depends how organised we are I'm going on leave soon and uh, it might all fall through but <laughs> this is the plan <laughs> should we finish with a joke oh, I haven't got any good you ones. hear about the uh break-in at the Perth Central Police Station no. last weekend. No, well, what happened? It was like on a Saturday night. They were all out. The police were all out in Northbridge patrolling the streets. All the toilets were stolen. So the police have come back. 
have started to investigate, but they've got nothing to go on. <laughs> yeah, you can see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call an unexpected pregnancy in Germany, Graham? Well, Graham's just gone off to answer the phone. Kinder surprise. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we'd better leave it there. It's getting bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure people have already turned us off. Thanks. See you again next time. Yeah, I couldn't. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.